Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. At the outset of the First World War, America's three most influential thinkers of the time were torn on how the U.S. should proceed in the world. These were Theodore Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, and Jane Addams. Each believed the United States must assume a more dynamic role in confronting the growing international problems on the world stage, but they disagreed how to approach what soon proved to be an unprecedented global catastrophe. To take us through the politics of the United States prior to the First World War, we have Neil Langto on the podcast. Neil is the author of a new book, The Approaching Storm. He takes us through the story of these three extraordinary leaders and how they debated, quarrelled and were split over the future of the United States. Here is Neil Langto on The Approaching Storm. Enjoy. Hi, Neil. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Not a problem at all. I'm excited for you to take us on a journey back through history to the early 1900s, a time when America's place as the world's greatest power was far from secure or even certain, and Britain still ruled the waves and so much more. Because it's here in your latest book that you begin in this crucible, this cauldron of thought in the United States about how America, the new world, should confront the old world and its looming world war. So take us back to that moment in history, Neil. Where should we begin? We should begin in the summer of 1914 when the situation in Europe is exploding. It was a great shock to many Americans. They thought that such a war could not happen in the 20th century, that we were beyond that. This is a progressive time in America, a time of change and reform. We're supposed to be moving towards a more humane society, if not world. So while this incredible slaughter is unfolding, I think a lot of Americans were fascinated by the war, but also repulsed. And in this book, I look at three very important figures in the United States. The president at the time, Woodrow Wilson his great rival and former president, Theodore Roosevelt, and someone who is not quite as well-known today, Jane Addams, who was actually world-famous at the time. She was a great social worker, reformer, writer, a brilliant thinker, who was on the cutting edge of virtually every liberal movement at this time, both in the United States and globally. 
Each of these three monumental figures is going to have a very different response to how we should deal with the situation in Europe. Is it our fight? Is it our concern? What exactly is our role? That is going to be the ongoing dialogue and argument between 1914 and America's eventual involvement in 1917. What is the path we take and how is this path going to affect the United States and the world in the future? I'm fascinated by that moment in history because it sends America on a path towards global hegemonic dominance and the building up of its military in a way that the world had never seen before. I remember going through the archives in places like New York and looking at the public opinion and public reaction to America's early on involvement in the First World War. Over 200,000 American casualties, the returning home of the maimed, the wounded and the dead. And the fact that, of course, as many people might not know now, there were protests in the streets in America that the United States should never get involved in a war such as this ever again. So I'm really keen to hear about the line of thought that did get them dragged into this war, a war that, of course, America was really never meant to be involved in. If we do go back that further step in history, we can see that the 1823 Monroe Doctrine and the 1904 Roosevelt Corollary had stated that the US would keep out of the affairs of that European old world and it would stick within the broader geographical concerns and constraints of the United States. And this is why you had smaller policing and bandit interventions, much smaller militaries as well that would get involved in theatres such as Haiti, Cuba, Nicaragua. They were the wars that America was fighting. It wasn't these great world wars. Now, I should think that you've chosen Roosevelt, Wilson and Adams for a particular reason, and that must be that they sum up the different opinions of what was being considered in terms of America's role in the world at this time and how it should react to these mountain tensions. So take us through what these different points of view were. Well, the three of them were all progressives, part of what we call the American progressive movement. This reform movement was a response to the very serious problems surfacing in the early 20th century, such as massive immigration and industrialization. And there was this idea that these problems needed to be addressed in some way with reforms of various kinds. But they also knew and worked with one another at various times. During certain periods, they were even quite close, although the war would really highlight and exacerbate their differences. They can't agree on what our role should be in this unprecedented global conflict. Let's start with Woodrow Wilson, the president in 1914. In some ways, he was a very improbable person to be in this position. He had been an academic, the former president of Princeton University, who had made a surprising leap into politics, first as governor of New Jersey and then as the presidential nominee for the Democrats in 1912. He'd only been in office for a year and a half when the war began, and suddenly he's faced with this very troubling situation. And he was someone who always said that he was more comfortable with domestic affairs than foreign affairs. And now he's going to have a real mess dumped on his lap. Wilson also had to contend with the very serious illness of his first wife, Ellen, who was about to die of kidney disease. So it's a very difficult time for Woodrow Wilson when the war begins. But Wilson did believe early on that America should stay neutral. What we want to do is at some point have a very substantial role in the peace process and the future of the post-war world. And the best way to achieve that is through a policy of strict neutrality. 
This is the path he tries to guide the country in during the early months of the war. And most Americans seem to be comfortable with this strategy, at least initially. Even Roosevelt thought this was acceptable at the time. But when Americans learn of the brutal invasion of Belgium in the late summer of 1914 and some of the atrocities committed by the Germans, that's when you begin already to see a shift in opinion in the United States. Not so much a willingness to go to war, but more of a greater sympathy for the Allied side and a turning against the Germans. Roosevelt in time came to believe that Wilson should have strongly protested the invasion of Belgium, even if we couldn't do much militarily. The United States, as you mentioned, had a very small army, I think about 100,000 or so in 1914, which paled in comparison to some of the European powers. So it's not like we were in a position to do much on the battlefield. But Roosevelt did believe that if we mean anything as a country, we need to have protested this. So that becomes one of the big splits right there between Roosevelt and Wilson. And Roosevelt is going to become a great advocate for military preparedness in America. This idea that the United States must be ready for war. If not this war, then the next war. In his correspondence at this time, Roosevelt was already anticipating Germany and Japan potentially teaming up in the future, and that America would need to be prepared for this. But it's a tough sell in America. Most Americans are not comfortable with anything with even a whiff of militarism. There's a lot of immigrants here who had fled from nations with conscription, so they're naturally very fearful of such talk. So it's difficult to build up much support in America for military preparedness in 1914 and into 1915, except on the eastern seaboard of the United States, where the ties to the United Kingdom and France were much stronger. Finally, you have Jane Addams, who was a pacifist among the many causes she embraced. Of course, women's suffrage was another one of her great causes. Addams believed that war was a barbaric relic of the past. Why not use more modern strategies and institutions to prevent wars or stop them once they began? The United States, she believed, should be doing everything in its power to somehow get the two sides talking get them to stop slaughtering each other. That should be our goal. And she will repeatedly push for some sort of council of neutrals, which would include the United States, the major neutral, but also include some of the others, such as Spain, Holland, and the Scandinavian countries. Ideally, this conference of neutrals would act as a ladder, a sort of first step to a larger conference involving the belligerents that might lead to a ceasefire and hopefully peace. That's what she feels the Wilson administration should be doing. The United States shouldn't be preparing for war. We should be trying to find ways to end it. So Adams, Roosevelt, and Wilson represent three major strains of American thought at this time. Of course, the appeal of their perspectives will wax and wane between 1914 and 1917, depending on the war's current effect on America. When the Lusitania is sunk in May 1915, for example, and over 100 Americans die, many in the United States will really begin to start to think about national defense for the first time. That doesn't mean that Americans are ready to go to war anytime soon, but they're slowly going to be brought closer and closer to involvement in the Great War, especially through American travel across the pond and American trade with both sides and other neutrals. These factors keep us constantly in the crossfire, which is really going to cause enormous difficulties for Woodrow Wilson. So as you explain this, the way I can visualise it almost is that 
Wilson is pretty much caught in the middle here. He's almost got the devil on his shoulder on one side, seeking America to be more prepared and more militarized, and that's Theodore Roosevelt. And then you've got the angels on his other shoulder, the angels of peace and Jane Adams, who's pushing for America to use its power, most definitely not stay back and not get involved, but use its power as neutrals, not to, to militarize and get involved in the war, but to use its vast economic might almost, and perhaps also its position as a, a world leader in terms of its faith and its Christianity to push peaceful values and sue for peace and seek for peace in this conflict. Is that the way that we can imagine this, or is there a little more nuance to it? I think that's fairly accurate. Wilson even said it himself many times, that he was trying to thread a very difficult needle. The American people didn't want to go to war, but they didn't want the country to appear weak, especially in relation to the behavior of both sides, whether it involved the loss of property or the loss of life. He also knew that people did want peace to be achieved. And then he has to think about political consequences as far as his re-election in 1916. Roosevelt wants to be president again. He had been a Republican up to 1912, but then left the party when the nomination was denied him that year. He had then formed what was known as the Progressive or Bull Moose Party and had actually finished second in the 1912 presidential election ahead of the Republicans. No one knew what Roosevelt was going to do in 1916, but Wilson recognized that the war was going to play an important part in the next election. As for Jane Addams, Wilson realized she's someone who commanded a great deal of influence. He knows that she could have some impact on the vote in the 12 states that have women's suffrage at this time. I don't think it's at all surprising that Wilson started to have much more contact with Jane Addams and the pacifists beginning in 1915. So Adams thought Wilson really saw things the same way she did, and that he was just waiting for the right moment to act for peace. And in his meetings with Adams and the other pacifists, he assured them that they were on the same page, but that it was simply a matter of the right time to act. Unfortunately, Adams will ultimately realize that Wilson was not quite as much of a pacifist as she thought. In fact, he proved quite willing to go to war when push came to shove in 1917. I think Wilson's desire to have a say in the peace process was greater than his wish to keep America out of the Great War. And I'm fairly certain Wilson could have kept the United States out of World War I. The American people would have accepted continued neutrality. Of course, Roosevelt would have condemned him. But I suspect that most Americans would have been okay with armed neutrality and continuing to fund the Allied war effort with loans. It's actually a very different situation from World War II when there is massive support in America for involvement, along with a very strong connection to the United Kingdom. But the special relationship between these two powers that developed in the 1940s is not really present during the World War I years. There's actually a lot of bickering. At times, the Allies got quite frustrated with American demands. Their idea was, we're fighting for our lives here, and you're troubling us about a few goods being intercepted or mail being confiscated. You can see this expressed more clearly in some of the correspondence from the British Foreign Office at this time. The British diplomat in Washington, Spring Rice, is constantly letting them know back in London, that the Americans don't feel any particular kinship with the mother country. They prefer that we win, but these Americans seem to only care about money. So there's more of a contentious relationship between the United States and the United Kingdom between 1914 and 1917. But as annoying as the Allies could be to many Americans, 
their so-called sins were seen as far less egregious than the Germans. Remember, German submarines had taken American lives. This was seen as far worse than these trade annoyances with the Allies. Throughout June on Not Just the Tudors, we're honoring Queen Elizabeth II's Platinum Jubilee by focusing on queenship in the 16th and 17th centuries. I'm Professor Suzanne Lipscomb, and all this month with my guests, I'll be exploring the coronations of Tudor queens, Queen's Regnant and Queen's Consort, who wielded power in ways we haven't thought about. Really, when we begin to look at Queen Consorts, we notice that there's a lot of ways at the Renaissance court that women could hold informal power through their relationship with the king. Then there's the queen who ruled over the Spanish Netherlands and the female Swedish king. You heard that right. What did a 17th century person actually mean by saying, oh, she dresses like a man? If she would have worn male clothing, she wouldn't have been able to rule Sweden. So for a month of all things magisterial and monarchical, look no further than not just the Tudors from History Hit. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. So when does this struggle, this tussle for Wilson's conscience start to turn towards America joining the war? When does Adams's influence over Wilson start to fade? I think in 1916, it looked like Wilson could keep us out of the war. Wilson got elected that November. It's interesting that Roosevelt was trying to get the nomination for the Republicans and he would have run against Wilson, but he was not able to pull that off. Wilson's ability to keep America out of war was very dependent upon the Germans' willingness to placate the United States. Earlier in 1916, the Germans had agreed under the Sussex Pledge to dial back their submarine warfare and instead follow the rules of cruiser warfare, where the safety of those on board targeted ships would be assured. 
This minimized conflict with the United States a great deal. The problem was that the Germans were not going to continue along those lines forever. And by the end of 1916, there was a growing awareness among the Germans that they could not win a long war, and it would be best to end this thing soon while they were still in the lead. They're also hoping that Wilson and the Americans would push that process along and spark some kind of peace conference. Through the fall of 1916, the Germans are waiting and waiting for Wilson to do something along those lines. When he finally acts in December and launches a peace initiative, it doesn't really gain much traction. At that point, the Germans figured that, since this failed, they had no choice but to resume unrestricted submarine warfare. This decision was made in early 1917, even though the Germans knew it would probably bring America into the war. But they believed this was an acceptable trade-off. Unleashed to their full potential, the submarines could end the war quickly, they hoped, by starving the British into submission. As far as the Americans were concerned, the Germans knew the United States Army was small and would take them months to get a substantial force ready to be deployed in Europe. By then, it would be too late and the war would be won. At least that's what the Germans believed. So that was a major factor in moving Wilson in a different direction in early 1917. After he learned of the new submarine policy, diplomatic ties were severed with Germany, which is a very important step towards war. Another important factor was the infamous Zimmerman telegram. This was a crazy scheme emanating from some of the less sensible individuals in the German foreign office. The idea was to use Mexico as a bridge to getting Japan on the German side and also to tie up American troops to prevent their deployment in Europe. How would this be accomplished? First, Germany proposed an alliance with Mexico if war with the United States occurred and even dangled the possibility of Mexico reacquiring territory now part of American states such as Texas and Arizona. It was a totally bonkers proposal that had no hope of success, especially with Mexico having overwhelming domestic problems of its own at that time. But the British intercepted this communication and eventually turned it over to the Wilson administration, who allowed it to be leaked to the American press. It naturally got people quite upset, including Wilson, who now recognized more than ever just how untrustworthy the Germans were. The final factor pushing Wilson was something I alluded to earlier. Wilson had come to believe that I've got to be involved in this war. The United States has to be involved. I want to be part of the peace process and the new world order that's going to come after this war. For that to happen, he felt America had to fight in this war. There's an interesting scene in the book where Adams and some of the pacifists came to see Wilson in the White House at this time. He made it very clear to her that war was going to be necessary. If we don't get involved in this war, he told her. I'll be lucky to get into the peace conference through a crack in the door. And this was unacceptable to him. It was almost like he believed involvement was necessary to fulfill his destiny. Of course, at times, Wilson had a bit of an exaggerated view of himself and his importance. But I believe these were the factors leading to Wilson's decision to go to Congress in April 1917 and ask for a war declaration. As I mentioned earlier, he could very well have gone in another direction. The vote in the House of Representatives was 373 to 50, but many observers at the time believed it would have been much closer with a secret ballot. There was definitely a lot of ambivalence. Many Americans wondered whether this was worth it. Did the relatively small number of Americans killed on the high seas 
warrant involvement in the bloodiest war in human history to date. A good many Americans had to be won over to the cause. But once the propaganda machine was up and running, much of this ambivalence vanished. Interestingly, a lot of Americans did not anticipate troops ever being sent over. They thought loans, munitions, and perhaps some naval support would be the extent of our involvement. But reality set in once Wilson made it clear that a force would be deployed and that conscription would also be part of the picture. So the decision to go to war was a fateful step for Wilson and the nation. It obviously had a great impact on the outcome of the war. So this is all about how you awaken the sleeping giant that is the United States and then get the American people on side. So how did Wilson do that? What were the narratives, the the messes, the strategic communications to the American public that showed them that this was a cause worth fighting for? The mountains of propaganda issued by the Wilson administration and other areas of American life were very important here. The Germans, of course, were demonized to a great degree. You have a lot of very silly things going on in the United States during the war. Some schools refusing to teach German, sauerkraut being renamed Liberty Cabbage and so on. But there's also a very powerful message put out over and over again that the United States is fighting for democracy and that this war is necessary so there will be no future wars. The famous cliche, this is the war to end all wars. You even had a lot of pacifists in the United States who buy into this, although Jane Addams did not. She was actually quite disillusioned that some of her friends in the movement wholeheartedly backed the war effort, and the official view that this conflict was necessary to create a better world for everyone. So the American people, once they were awakened, as you say, became some of the most fanatical supporters of the Great War. Of course, within a decade or so, there's an increasing sense that the war was a mistake and that America should stay out of these conflicts in the future. That's why Franklin Roosevelt, who becomes president in the 1930s and had been in the Wilson administration, had a difficult time getting Americans to recognize some of the global threats emerging during the Depression years. There's a feeling among many Americans we had somehow been tricked into fighting a needless war, and we would not be tricked the same way if another European war broke out. That's an interesting point, because I mentioned about these protests that took place as the casualties began to mount. And it's fascinating that you say that there was this air of betrayal. What did this do for Wilson's popularity? What did it do for Roosevelt? What did it do for Adams? Was she proven right? Adams had a very hard time during the war because she did not follow the party line. She also dared to make statements suggesting that German civilians should not be allowed to starve. Naturally, she was criticized very harshly for this, and her popularity and prestige suffered a great deal. Eventually, she managed to carve out a niche during the war, giving speeches for the Food Administration, which was set up by the Wilson administration to promote food conservation for the war effort. She was comfortable in this kind of humanitarian role, but not in the kind of rah-rah patriotism and blind support of the war effort that some of her colleagues had embraced. But even when the war was over, she was still seen as a radical and a dangerous one at that. She was caught up in a general backlash in the 1920s in the United States against all things perceived as radical. J. Edgar Hoover's FBI even had her under surveillance at times. By the 1930s, when things have simmered down a bit and people are beginning to look at the war, war a little differently, her reputation and stature begin to grow again. She won the Nobel Peace Prize, 
Interestingly, Wilson, Roosevelt, and Adams were all Nobel Peace Prize winners. For Roosevelt, his great frustration was that Wilson would not let him serve in this war. He desperately wanted to go over with the division he had been organizing for months. But the Wilson administration said, uh-uh, you're not going. It was incredibly devastating to Roosevelt. He had even humbled himself to go to the White House to make his case before Wilson, a man he absolutely despised. But Wilson was not going to budge. Of course, Wilson had no reason to do him a favor. This was a man he hated. But military officials were also very much opposed. A former president like Roosevelt would be more trouble than he was worth, and he would want to be consulted on all kinds of matters, both large and small. And Roosevelt didn't have much military experience beyond his brief stint as a rough rider during the Spanish-American War. And he was not in very good physical condition either. It absolutely devastated Roosevelt that he could not fight and die for his country. He had to sit on the sidelines and watch his four sons serve. Unfortunately, his youngest, Quentin, was killed in 1918, and Roosevelt himself only lived a few weeks after the war ended. It's interesting in that if Roosevelt had lived and Wilson did not have a stroke in 1919, there's a good chance that these two giants would have faced off in the presidential election in 1920, which would have been quite a contest. Wilson, I think, handled the war as well as could be expected, although his administration clearly overreached in its over-the-top attempts to crack down on disloyal speech in opposition to the war effort. Whether Roosevelt would have followed a similar course is hard to say, but I think some progressives were surprised that Wilson did not flinch from some of these wartime decisions. Of course, Wilson's greatest difficulties came after the war, in the peace conference at Versailles, which I touch on only briefly in this book. I do think that Wilson might have had a greater influence at Versailles if the war had gone on a little longer. The American expeditionary forces, which was already growing rapidly by the day, would have been considerably larger and done more of the fighting if the war had continued into 1919. As it turned out, Wilson suffered a massive stroke soon after he returned from the peace conference while he's trying to build up support in America for the League of Nations. He lives another four years or so, but only a shell of the man he had once been. It is, but like you say, Wilson achieves his objectives. He's not only part of the peace talks, but at some points he very much is steering and leading these. You know, we're all taught about the 14 points and the disillusion of empire and pulling apart the central powers to create new nation states and all based upon that premise and the importance of sovereignty, something which we continue to live with today. So do we owe Wilson this accolade of being the president that brought America great power status, even superpower status, to the point that it holds in the world today as the world's global hegemon. I think he does deserve more credit than he receives these days. I'm sure you're aware of how Wilson's reputation has really suffered in the past five or ten years, mostly because of his racial views. He grew up in the American South, and his racial attitudes really never evolved. Worst of all, his administration imposed a policy of segregation in the federal agencies and departments. So there's been more focus on that aspect of Wilson's legacy, which certainly deserves to be strongly criticized. At the same time, some of his contributions have been minimized. Wilson undoubtedly accomplished some great things as president. He was truly an internationalist, in some ways ahead of his time, and as you say, he played a major role in making the United States into a truly formidable superpower. 
We should say, yes, that Princeton University says it's to remove the name of Wilson from its buildings on campus because of his racist beliefs and policies. But is there another legacy of Wilson here as well? Not only as America as a great power, as a superpower, but also as the world's largest by far military power. Was America inevitably always going to be on that track towards military superiority over the rest of the world? Or was this something that Wilson also sparked? I think Wilson had to follow the circumstances of the war. And Roosevelt, of course, believed, and I think with good reason, that if we had prepared sooner, we would have had been able to deploy a significant force much more quickly than we did. It wasn't until well into 1918 that you had a really substantial American military presence involved in the fighting. And the interesting thing about your point, which is very true, once the war was over, we let the strength of the army dwindle again, such that by World War II, Franklin Roosevelt is going to have a difficult situation. But I do think Franklin Roosevelt learned from Wilson's mistakes as far as preparedness was concerned. FDR was able to get conscription pass and a massive defense buildup in place before the United States went to war in 1941. So I think we were much more prepared for the Second World War than the first. And as we look back to Europe today and the outbreak of war on the European continent, what can we see, learn, hear from history? What lessons are there for us, perhaps parallels that we can see that help us understand the situation in Europe today and the American public's perception of it? I recently wrote an op-ed about this very issue because I could see very strong parallels between the United States' response to the invasion of Belgium in 1914 and the invasion of Ukraine in 2022. In both cases, you have a Democratic president in his second year in office faced with a serious international crisis, not only trying to decide what to do, but also trying to determine exactly what course the American people will accept. In both cases, the American public was very sympathetic to the plight of these nations violated by predatory powers, but unwilling to accept any kind of direct military involvement, especially in a situation they don't completely understand. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. 
You know, Teddy Roosevelt once made a point of saying that the American people were very ignorant about foreign affairs. And I don't think that's changed appreciably over the course of a century. Many Americans today don't quite comprehend what's happening in the current war, but they do feel an instinctive sympathy towards the Ukrainian people. Unlike Wilson in 1914, Biden has allies prepared to act alongside the United States. And he also has powerful economic tools, which Wilson did not necessarily have at his disposal. But I do think these issues are always present in the history of American foreign policy. What is our role in these crises? What are our obligations and responsibilities as a great nation? Will the American people accept these kinds of foreign entanglements? And what will the political fallout be for the party in power? These were matters Woodrow Wilson had to consider in 1914 and Joe Biden today. Well, Neil, thank you so much for your time and for bringing this, well, I would say ever relevant, but more relevant than ever history to us. Tell us, what is the name of your new book and where can we buy it? The name of the book is The Approaching Storm, Roosevelt, Wilson, Adams and Their Clash Over America's Future. It can be found on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and any independent bookstore. You can also find more information on my website, www.neillankto.com. Perfect, Neil. Thank you so much. We'll put links to those in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in. Remember to subscribe so you can access our original cutting-edge military histories each week, twice a week, every week. And if you think there's a history we need to cover, or you want to share your own family histories, then email us directly on warfare@historyhit.com. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.